The Tom Sumner Program. Old fashioned radio for a new generation. Oh, it's always a pleasure to be with you, John. You know that. Yay, Tom! <laughs> I love it in Flint! You're very astute, Tom. Have an easy question. I'll debate Andy Dillon on your show. Well, oh, that's a very good question. Uh, hello, darling. This is Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, with Tom Sumner. I'm all right, Tom. How are you? Hey, lucky day, Mr. Ciao, Tom. How are you today? That's a good question. <laughs> Hi, this is actor-comedian Jonah Pody, and you're listening to the Tom Snyder, uh, Tom Smothers, uh, I mean, I'm sorry, what's his name? Uh, Sumner. The Tom Sumner Program. Good morning, Tom. How are you doing? Hey, at least I got the Tom part right. The Tom Sumner Program. Old-fashioned radio for a new generation. Our fellow Americans. Right now, the COVID-19 vaccines are available to millions of Americans. And soon, they will be available to everyone. The science is clear. These vaccines will protect you and those you love from this dangerous and deadly disease. They could save your life. So we urge you to get vaccinated when it's available to you. That's the first step to ending the pandemic and moving our country forward. It's up to you. MTA Flint is nationally recognized for continually seeking to provide sustainable, reliable, and cost-efficient transportation for individuals throughout the region. Through work-related and non-emergency medical transportation and your ride services, MTA is moving people with future and alternative fuel technologies. More information about MTA Flint and specialized services is available at mtaflint.org. Hi, this is Gretchen Whitmer, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. Hey, welcome to the second hour of our three-hour tour known as the Tom Sumner Program. My guest this hour is on a mission to bring evidence and politics together, um, as he does in a new book called The Alien Nation, Lessons from the Bedside for America's Leaders. He is the... um, Chief Medical Officer at Bellevue Hospital, uh, America's oldest public hospital in New York City, and he joins me now by phone, Dr. Nate Link. Nate, welcome to the show. Good morning, Tom. Thanks for having me. Um, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm struggling for, for the opening question because I'm, I'm wondering if, uh, you know, in, when it comes to American politics and, and the toxicity that exist there if uh, doctors know best. Well, and maybe you're wondering if it's just a hopeless um, <laughs> situation we're in. So really that's what my book's about. I, I, uh, I've been at Bellevue Hospital for almost four decades, and I'm almost as old as this old hospital, I think. But over the time here, I have noticed the healthcare industry undergo a remarkable transformation, a real advancement in standards of performance, especially in leadership, uh, how we incorporate evidence in the care of patients, how we handle mistakes that we make, how we treat our staff and our patients, how we align towards our mission. Uh, it's remar- remarkable how far we've come in, in, in the healthcare world. But when I look across the divide at uh, you know our political world, it feels like it's really far behind. And our industry, our healthcare industry, has learned a lot from other industries. We've learned about service from the hotel trade. We've learned about efficiency from the automobile industry. And we've learned about safety from the airline industry. Um, I'm 
just hoping to pay it forward by sharing some of the principles we've learned that make hospitals, you know, high quality and safe for our patients. So, and so my book says here, go ahead. Go ahead. I was just going to say, and in the book, um, of course, when you first started at Bellevue was uh, about the time of, of the AIDS epidemic. But since that time, um, the hospital has, has uh, worked through um, huge events like uh, Hurricane Sandy. And then, of course, uh, the it's been the epicenter uh, initially for the um, COVID-19 pandemic that we've all been living through this last year and a half. And what you've done in your book is said, you know, look, we had these things that were seemingly insurmountable, but here's here's what we did. You could do this too. Well, yes. I think the, the COVID story is especially instructive. Um, everybody knows that New York was, was buried in an avalanche uh, almost a little more than a year ago uh, of COVID patients um, early in the epidemic. Um, and, and in fact, our hospital, as many other hospitals, had to transform itself in just a few weeks. Um, to, I mean, it was, it was, we could feel a tidal wave coming. It was an invisible army, you know, really approaching the gates because we didn't really have much testing, as you recall, in the nation at that time. We weren't able to test our communities and see it coming, but we felt it coming. So in a very short order of time, our hospital transformed itself. Our, our, our facilities people, the carpenters and plumbers and electricians went to work, you know, opening up new inpatient units and, and beds and rooms um, to expand our capacity. Uh, they converted all of our ICU cubicles to negative pressure spaces with, with fans and, ex, you know, exhaust ducts and et cetera. And, and at the same time, our staff was redeployed and transformed. So our surgeons gave up surgery and became medical doctors. Our medical doctors became intensive care doctors. The uh, eye doctor joined the ICU team. Uh, the anesthesiologists, who are no longer doing surgery, they started doing the procedures for everyone else. And our orthopedic surgeons, believe it or not, became the proning team. That's the group who turns patients from face up to face down when they're on a ventilator to oh, okay. uh, improve their, their ventilation. Everybody had a new job to do. Everybody pitched in. It was all mission-driven, and we were all aligned. And so in a few short weeks, we took a massive hit. We had, at, on Easter Sunday a year ago, 400 COVID patients in the hospital. We went from zero to 400 in about three weeks. Um, and it was uh, remarkable to get to that point. We were breathing pretty hard. But then we looked around and we saw in the outer boroughs, like Brooklyn and Queens and the Bronx, it was much worse, actually. And patients were backed up in all the emergency departments still. So we did an even more remarkable thing. We started bringing in transfers on top of our COVID patients. We brought in 600 transfers over a few weeks. I know. I talked to a, uh, a a paramedic who was working in New York during that time and talked about um, ambulances being parked in hospital parking lots serving as hospital rooms, hospital beds. Yeah, that's how desperate. That's how desperate it was. A, a lot of patients were just stuck in the emergency departments. The hospitals were full. Patients kept coming in. There was nowhere to put them, and they were literally backed up into the parking lots, you know, of the hospitals in these outer boroughs. Uh, it was just a complete overrun of the capacity. Um, 
you know, but in the end, I think it was the alignment, uh, the coalescence of forces that, that was such a beautiful thing to see in, in all the hospitals of New York City. Are, are people in, uh, in the medical field, in the health care field, are they, based on their training, I, I guess the phrase I'm looking for is cross-trained. Are they able to just take up other jobs um, as, as part of their routine under these kinds of circumstances well, more than in other industries? I wouldn't expect them to because, you know, medicine has become very specialized. I yeah. mean, it's super specialized. Doctors, you know, do a very narrow thing nowadays. And under normal circumstances, we do not cross. Um, what was extraordinary in COVID is I think everybody realized the only way to survive and succeed was just to drop all pretense of what, my, what I'm trained to do. <laughs> you mean, you know, and pick up you the mean there's a hierarchy to this? <laughs> yeah, well, you know, that's the thing. It, hospitals are somewhat siloed. You know, if you get different disciplines, right, medicine, surgery, psychiatry, you got different, you know, doctors and nurses. And it's, it's not unusual in a hospital to have factions and a little bit of competition and conflict. But it just truly melted away uh, during this time of COVID. I wish, you know, it was always that way, but it was, it was really remarkable how unselfish people were and how hard they worked. Because everyone was aligned to the common goal and the mission, and it was a beautiful thing to see. Do you have any sense for, and, and this is parenthetical really to our discussion because we want to talk about the lessons learned and how they can be applied to other things. Um, mm -hmm. But do you have any sense for how many lives were saved Wow, that's a great, great question. I, I would tell you that in the, the peak of this, you know, uh, surge that happened last spring, we had a couple thousand, we had a couple thousand COVID patients who were really quite ill. And in the end uh, of that surge, our, our mortality rate was about uh, 16 to 18 percent, which was actually, is, that's a super high mortality rate. I'm just going to start by that saying that, but it was lower than the average and uh, much lower than it could have been. So I could imagine that even in our one hospital, many more hundreds of people could have lost their lives if we had not been as well organized as we were um, to, to handle what came in. Um, was, did the size and, and the history of Bellevue, the fact that it had been around for so long and it was a big hospital, did it make it... Um, a good environment to to make the kinds of changes you needed to make to deal with the the influx. Yeah, and that's a very insightful question, and I think the answer is yes. Um, you know, Bellevue has a 300-year history, and we are a public safety net hospital, and it's always been our role to be on the front line of an epidemic. I mean, you, you could start with um, you know yellow fever and smallpox back in the 1700s and uh, tuberculosis, and you mentioned AIDS. Um, we actually had an Ebola patient at Bellevue. We're, we're the only general service hospital in the country to have successfully cared for an Ebola patient. And I think that goes to the legacy and the culture and mission. And, and people who work here, they know that's our job. No one questions that. So it seemed only natural that once we had taken our hit of COVID that we would look around uh, around us to look for, to if we could help anybody else out. I think the staff buy into that naturally, and it does help to have that legacy. 
Were there things that we could have done as a country response-wise to the COVID-19 uh, pandemic um, that that might have lessened the severity of it? And and I and I when I say that I want to put it in context because this certainly would be part of Bellevue's uh, history. The Spanish flu from a hundred years ago. I read some. Uh, newspaper notices talking about various things that were closing and you know shelter in place and it seemed like all of the regiments were basically the same a hundred years later yeah there's a remarkable similarity to uh, what happened in that epidemic and how we had to respond to it and even in the issues that arose you know uh, some some cities were more aggressive about the shutdown than others and it became a, a point of contention actually um, but to get to your original question, I think, yes, there's much we could have done better. Um, I think, uh, you know, one of the initial problems we had was some initial denial uh, at the White House level about whether there really was going to be a pandemic and whether we needed to prepare. Some of the organs of preparation for pandemics had been underfunded or, or minimized uh, in the couple years leading up to it. And then, um, and then once it got rolling in the U.S., we were slow to have testing available. I mean, every doctor would tell you you got to diagnose before you can treat, and if you don't have your your eyes open, can't see it coming, with all the testing, you're you're behind the eight ball, you know, in your response. And so that that slowed things down. But I, I think the the biggest disappointment to me is that we didn't really coalesce as a nation around it. It really is a war. You know, this pandemic is a world war. More Americans have died from COVID than died in all the years of World War II. So uh, in scope, definitely equal to a war. And in principle, you know, this is an invader invading our homes and our communities. And so what we really needed was a unified national response, not a state-by-state approach, but, but a kind of a federal uh, organization uh, to, to gather our staff and our, our knowledge and our equipment and supplies and, uh, you know, dole them out in a, you know, coordinated fashion and collaborate um, rather than compete. And I think that's the biggest difference between what I felt in my hospital to what I felt going across the nation. Did we, did the country ever really coalesce? Uh, not totally, no. I mean, we still are at odds, right? We're about issues of vaccination about mask wearing, um, you know, that it's unfortunately it's settled into some familiar political lines, um, which is really unfortunate. Um, but there, there are other countries in the world, like South Korea is a good example, which is just a few hundred miles from China. They, they were much better organized from the start, and it's a very densely populated country. They've had only 2,000 deaths um, in a year and a half, and, and we've had, you know, close to 600,000. And, and, and it's my point, there's a way to do this well, and it, it means being organized. People need to sacrifice, just like we did in World War II. You know, everyone has a role to play. And in, in COVID, that's, that's about denying it a new host. You know, you, you don't want the COVID to keep passing to 
fresh, vulnerable people. So, Nate, you know, I, everyone has to do their job. I hate to interrupt, and I want to pick up on this, but I have to go to a break here. Can you stick around for a few minutes so we can talk Absolutely. a little Absolutely. I'll hang Great. on. Sure. My guest is uh, Dr. Nate Link from Bellevue, and the name of his book is The Ailing Nation. We're going to have uh, more with Nate after we let our broadcast partner squeeze in a few words. If you're streaming us, we have some Everybody messages as well. Do brand new dance now hi this is mark farner and you are listening to the tom sumner program I'm Julie Lopez with Crime Stoppers. Have you ever wondered what to do if you have information about a crime or the whereabouts of a felony fugitive and you want the police to know but you need to remain anonymous? Well, here's what you can do. You can go to p3tips.com or download the mobile app. You can go to Crime Stoppers of Flint and Genesee County's Facebook page and click on the Leave an Anonymous Tip tab, or you can call 1-800-422-JAIL. All methods are anonymous, and if your help leads to a felony arrest, you may be eligible for a cash reward. Remember, your voice matters. While we've been staying safe at home, scientists have been on a journey. The destination, a COVID-19 vaccine. This journey began decades ago with research into other coronaviruses. Scientists built from there with months of research and development, cooperation with other experts worldwide, and clinical trials on tens of thousands of volunteers of diverse race, age, and health status. They arrived at a safe, effective vaccine, and hundreds of thousands in Michigan have already been vaccinated. But the next step is ours. We need to get the vaccine when we can, keep wearing masks correctly and taking precautions until we reach our destination, freedom from COVID-19 and getting back to the lives we love. Discover the facts for yourself at michigan.gov slash COVID vaccine. A message from the Michigan Department of Health and Human Services. The Tom Sumner Program plays host to the best political roundtable on radio every Wednesday from 10 a.m. to noon. Armchair Politics features great commentary and analysis about the headlines from local, state, and national politics with an alumni of world-class pundits, plus quotes, tweets, and those weird and wacky stories we call the X-Files. If it's Wednesday, catch Armchair Politics on the Tom Sumner Program. East Village Magazine is the monthly neighborhood magazine read all over Flint. With support from grants, donations, and advertisers, East Village Magazine's talented local writers give you an in-depth look at local news, issues, and people that make Flint, Flint. Copies of East Village Magazine are available at many of your favorite shops and restaurants around Flint or online at eastvillagemagazine.org. East Village Magazine, community-focused and community-supported. Discoveries. They happen when we least expect them in places we thought we knew. And discoveries have a way of teaching us a little more about ourselves along the way. Welcome to Flint and Genesee County, where up north meets down south. Home to Michigan's largest county park system and a vibrant culture. A place filled with discoveries we've yet to make throughout acres of beautiful lakes, wetlands, and woods, and in the diverse city beyond. Where the uplifting melodies of gospel choirs fill the air. Where the work of renowned artists color the galleries and museums. Where the fresh fruits and vegetables at the downtown farmer's market awaken our senses. And where the cultural center and planetarium broaden our view of the world. Let's spend a few days enjoying the wonders of Flint and Genesee County. Where the joy of discovery 
is pure Michigan. Your trip begins at michigan.org. Technical assistance for the Tom Sumner Program is provided by Swiftlet Technology, engineering and IT services at swiftlet.technology. I know of a place where you never get harmed, a magical place with magical charms, indoors, indoors, indoors. Take it away. Hi, this is Deb Cherry, Genesee County Treasurer, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Radio Show. And welcome back, everybody. We continue now with my conversation with Dr. Nate Link, the uh, Chief Medical Officer from Bellevue in uh, New York, and the author of a new book called "The Ailing Nations" or "The Alien, The Alien, The Ailing Nation: Lessons from the Bedside for America's Leaders." And uh, Nate, welcome back. Thanks for sticking around, and uh, sorry to make you sit through all that. No, no worries, Tom. But glad to continue our conversation. Um, just before the break, we were talking a little bit about the uh, um, our reaction to, to COVID-19 and how it might have been handled better. Um, but at the heart of your book, it's trying to um, teach leaders in government and I imagine uh, industry and, and other parts of American life the lessons that can be learned from how Bellevue responded um, in uh, COVID-19 and under other um, such conditions. Um, Is it possible to, in this day and age of people who doubt the veracity of medical experts and science uh, experts and uh, elected leaders and, and corporate CEOs to to learn. <laughs> well, that's a very good question, and uh, I'm going to say I'm an optimist, and I think it is possible um, to learn and change. And I think the healthcare industry is a good example. We weren't always the way we are. I I, I can remember back in the days of early medicine, we were not evidence based. As a, as a discipline. And in the old days, when I was younger, you know, decisions were made at the bedside, usually by the most senior person in the room or whoever had the most, the highest on the hierarchy, would their opinion would hold sway. Uh, and it wasn't necessarily about facts. Sometimes it was the loudest voice um, or the most obnoxious voice that carried the day. And that's what it felt like. Um, but back in, in the early uh, 90s, a movement began in medicine to transform our culture to one that's evidence-based. And the idea of evidence-based medicine, that doctors utilize results of research, um, read papers themselves, um, use guidelines that are factually based, developed by specialty societies, driven by truth. And it's not how high you are on the totem pole. It's, it's the article you're quoting, or it's the fact and its source that drives your treatment of patients. And I can tell you it wasn't easy change. Um, people who were naturally high up in the hierarchy resisted this. It felt threatening. You know, I'm, I'm the senior professor. Why am I being questioned here by, you know, the young upstart who's quoting a paper? So it took time. Uh, but it took a hold. And people could see it was a better way, and it was better for patients in the end because they got the right treatments. 
my my entire discipline of medicine, the entire field, moved uh, uh, light years over the last three decades to get where we are today, where the only acceptable approach is one that's based on evidence. How now, do we, I, how do we how do we reinstate decision making based on evidence in an era of misinformation, alternative facts, and and how do we build trust in the the research and the, and the facts that are being done? Well, I the only hope, the only hope is that the true leaders of our country, which are the voters, the American public, the electorate, they have to believe in this. They have to consider this to be uh, one of our most important goals, is to restore truth in politics and expect our leaders to base decisions on evidence and to speak the truth and not to elect people you know, who don't tell the truth. If our electorate doesn't buy into this, and they, they are basically the target of my book. That's who I'm speaking to when I say America's leaders. I'm talking to the voters. They have to set the standards for leaders to follow. And if they don't, our leaders will misbehave forever. Uh, we'll, there will be no hope for us if American public doesn't stand for truth and evidence. And, and I, I saw it happen in medicine. I know it could happen in our political world, but it's it's not an easy task. And, but it just seems it seems so insurmountable, Nate, um, when we have you know a large percentage a large percentage, nearly half of the American voters who don't believe the results of the last election they voted in. Well, you, you are correct. We have a big hill to climb. But I'd, I'd like to share another example from my world um, yeah, about please. culture change. Um, the first two chapters of my book are entitled Atonement and Forgiveness, which is an unusual topic for leadership. But it's about how we handle mistakes, how we handle mistakes that we make and how we handle mistakes that others make. And this is where I think the medical world has really advanced. I'll, I'll, I'll share a story, which I, I think makes it very clear. Uh, a few years ago, we had a patient in uh, an intensive care unit at Bellevue who was on a ventilator, and a ventilator malfunctioned. So an alarm went off in the nursing station. The patient's nurse, we'll call her Natalie, did not respond to the alarm. She ignored it. A few minutes later, it went off again, and this time, when she went to the patient, it was too late. He actually died. It was a fatal error by an employee who didn't do her duty. And uh, this, of course, immediately became uh, a huge topic in the hospital, and our leadership team got together, and we, you know, we realized we're going to have to punish this nurse. We're going to have to make an example of her. But we always do an investigation anytime there's an adverse event. And so this time, when we interviewed Natalie's fellow nurses, they all said the same thing. These alarms, they go off all the time. False alarms all day long. We have all stopped answering the alarms because they're pretty much worthless and we can't get our work done. So Natalie really wasn't a bad apple. She was really like all the rest. She had the bad luck of a situation that, that went off the rails. But truthfully, none of the nurses were responding to alarms. And that was when we realized we actually had a system problem. It wasn't a people problem. And the system was the alarm system. And who's responsible for that? We were, the leaders. That was our accountability. So we had to fix the alarms. We, we reset them. We, uh, we had to retrain all the nurses. We had to uh, monitor everyone's performance. And, and since then, that, nothing like that has ever happened again in those units. Um, if we had just 
done our initial impulse was punish the nurse, we would have missed the boat, and it would have kept happening until we fixed it. So this is what one of the things I've learned in my long career in medicine, which is our professional staff are always trying to do the right thing, but occasionally when things go wrong, there's usually a system defect, a system problem that is failing to protect our patients or leading our staff astray. This approach to leadership is called the just culture. It's a term that's strong in healthcare. The just culture means the leaders know the staff are trying to do the right thing. When things don't go well, we don't blame and shame. We investigate. We uncover the system defects. We correct them together. It's like an alliance between management and staff to produce the best outcomes. And this is how the healthcare industry has become safer over time. Now, you talk about in the book applying some of the lessons learned at Bellevue and in the healthcare profession um, and, and applying them to real-life political issues like climate change, tax policy, campaign financing, gerrymandering, abortion, yes. and gun control, yep. and, and trying to encourage voters and their representatives to attack these problems with evidence-based um, solutions. Yes, exactly. And you, you gave some good examples here um, where, this, where this applies. So we know that Americans uh, keep electing uh, national leaders and then we're disappointed in them. They never seem to behave the way we hope, and we, we rate them very lowly on any survey. Um, our, uh, our representatives and our senators, we elected them and then we're disappointed, and they seem to misbehave. And, and just as in uh, Natalie and the alarms, uh, when, when one person misbehaves, maybe it's that one person. But when everyone's misbehaving, you've got to start looking at system defects. And you have to say, what is it about our system that seems to bring out the worst behavior? You know, it's and interesting that you say that, Nate, because there was some polling done uh, within the last few years that um, American people ranked Congress somewhere down below lawyers and cockroaches. <laughs> but if you polled yeah. them about their individual congressman, the polling for the congressman was very high. Yes, and that's so fascinating, isn't it? <laughs> it? It really is, but it kind of sounds a little bit like the Natalie scenario. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I think it is important to say, why, do, why are we disappointed in the behavior of these people that we picked, and what could possibly be bringing about this bad behavior? And I think we have a couple big system defects in our democracy, and one of them is gerrymandering. Um, as most people know, gerrymandering is when one political party uh, reshapes the, sh the shape of a district so as to make it a safe seat for that party. So Democrats do this, Republicans do this, and we have a number, actually most, of our members of Congress are in safe seats. These, these elections aren't even contested anymore. Once you win your primary, that you're it. But to win your primary, you need to be true blue or true red, almost an extremist, to win over you know, your, your solid red or blue constituents. And by the time you go to Congress, you have no interest or incentive to move to the center or compromise or collaborate in any way with the other side. In fact, if you do, the folks at home might throw you out of office. 
So by gerrymandering into these very solid red and blue districts, we send people to Washington who are prepared not to work together, not to collaborate. And this, what I consider unseemly behavior of not trying to lead in a unified fashion our nation is brought about by a system defect, which could be cured simply by requiring independent commissions to shape district lines instead of political parties. But the folks in Washington have an incentive to keep things the way they are because they love those safe seats and they don't want to compromise if they don't have to. That process is is going on in in Michigan where I'm at um, currently. Is is there a similar initiative going on in New York as well? Well, as you know, there's a bill in Congress that would... um, greatly restrict gerrymandering, if not eliminated altogether. And there are several states, not New York, um, but there are several states which now use independent commissions. Uh, Arizona, Washington are two of the states um, that that um, it's only independent commissions that, that shape districts and not political parties. And I think this is crucial to preventing the uh, the gridlock we have in Washington, because quite frankly, People that come from safe districts tend to be obstructionists. And if you want to throw a monkey wrench in the gears of Congress, just elect people from safe districts because they never have to work with anybody else. Yeah, that's that's important. And I'm not sure a lot of people realize what a linchpin uh, redistricting is. Yes, and it's what I call a core system defect. Like, like the alarm. Until you fix the alarm, the behavior is not going to improve. Until we fix gerrymandering, uh, we're not going to improve the behavior of people in Congress, and we're going to continue to experience gridlock. Well, it's um, it's 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 great to hear you say that, and surprising a little bit. Um, you know, we don't typically think of uh, people from the healthcare profession uh, profession as uh, thinking about the the everyday life political things that are going on. Well, you know, what happened to me was I, of course, been uh, uh, deeply ingrained with these principles and slowly developed them over my career. So I, I see them first. Every time I see a problem in the hospital, I think about system problems. But it's actually human nature not to think like that. It's human nature to uh, look for a culprit. If we're unhappy with how things have gone, even even in our own families with our children or what have you, we tend to fall into this trap of blaming uh, pointing a finger, establishing that culpability, and and coming up with a punishment that just all feels very fair and just. It's a natural way to approach things. And it's only by seeing the opposite of that in play that I can see how powerful it is. Because one of the great things in a hospital is employees aren't afraid to raise their hands if they make a mistake. They don't hide it like they used to. Uh, people understand we're not going to blame you and punish you. We want you want you to tell tell us what's affecting the safety of your patient, and let's work together to solve it. It's a whole completely different culture. And when it's, once I see it working, um, I notice where it's not happening, and wish wish it was. How did the the light bulb go off for you, Nate? That you know, I, I need to write this down. I need to put this in a book and share it with people who need to hear this. Yeah. Um, well, I think after election 2016, I was struggling with 
the degeneration of the conversation, you know, the public conversation and the factionalization of America that was taking place. And I was just struck by the difference. And, and I was thinking, hey, could I just pay it forward? I mean, why don't I just share some of these simple ideas? And every chapter of my book is a different idea. I mean, I, I'm talking about the just culture here, but there, there are many components of the, the things that I've learned. And I'm trying to say, let's just enlighten a little bit. And maybe, again, it's not going to happen overnight, but it didn't in medicine happen overnight, the changes. And there was a lot of resistance to change. The just culture was not popular, believe me. I mean, it's not, it's not <laughs> everyone's natural impulse. And you know what? It's even got to the point in hospitals that we will, we will share with a patient a mistake that we made that harmed them that they might not even have realized if we hadn't told them. Can you see how remarkable that is? Uh, inviting a lawsuit even. Or yeah, that's hard, to, that's hard to even believe because the reputation that most doctors have is that, you know, if, if they say nothing, they can't be sued. No, that's exactly right. But, you know, doctors do want to talk to patients about mistakes. They feel bad about them. They want to clear the deck and apologize even. They, they want to have uh, a transparent conversation and uh, be completely open. That, that, that is definitely uh, uh, an impulse of a physician that gets um, shielded by the, the attorneys who say, Dude, don't, don't admit that, don't tell your patient, or what have you. And there was a lot of resistance. I mean, people were concerned about their reputations, as you could imagine. There was, there was a lot of pushback. But we have gone into a much better world in medicine, and I'm, we're not all the way there, believe me. We're not all the way there. And some hospitals are more enlightened than others. But I can tell you, in my hospital, when I go to um, our uh, central office, who runs all 11 hospitals of the New York system, and we're talking about our adverse events, because we have to do that, everything gets discussed, the first question they'll ask us is, did you disclose to the patient? And how did that go? And the second question they'll ask is, how are the staff doing? That must have been pretty hard for them to have experienced this mistake. Are we taking care of the staff? And it's all part of the just culture. It has transformed our world, and it makes it so much better for patients and staff. Again, the book is called The Ailing Nation, Lessons from the Bedside for America's Leaders, written by uh, Bellevue Chief Medical Officer Dr. Nate Link, my guest uh, this morning. Um, Nate, uh, where... Obviously, the book is a great place to start, but I always give guests an opportunity to let listeners know where they can find out more about you, the book, your work, past, present, and future, and, um, um, and, and some of the things that we've been talking about. Do you have a website? I do have a website. It's called uh, snickersnack.com. I have a, a YouTube channel, which is Nate Link MD, which is a series of video essays. One of my goals on the website is to compose 10-minute essays on political topics by bringing in evidence. And here's where I get into you know, topics like tax policy or racism, um, um, or climate change, where I'm really, I'm really trying to inform my topic with actual evidence. And I, I have accessed a lot of, uh, of government sites to download data because I consider that the evidence that should drive policy. Uh, and I try to present these things in a very clear way where you can follow from point A to point B. And I try to be open-minded because I'm not a Democrat or a Republican. I'm an independent voter. 
Um, I just am distressed by how far off we've gone off the rails in recent years when it comes to truth in politics, and I'm just trying to reverse the trend. Yeah, there's a <laughs> there's a great story about two politicians that are yelling at each other, and one says, "Are you lying to me?" and the other says, "Yeah, but hear me out." <laughs> um, is there still time to run for mayor? Still time to run for me? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no, no, I, I got a really good day job here, and um, I'm uh, I'm trying to you know I'm trying to get my voice heard, um, and I I think that. Um, the folks who read the book will appreciate all the different dimensions of this because um, I get into issues around compassion, coalescence, uh, the divisiveness in politics, which I think is also a big drag on our, on our moving forward. We, everyone has just kind of like fallen into teams, right? Uh, Democrats and Republicans and by religion and race and gender and every way you can think of, we kind of like broken into teams, which I call factions. And everybody's primary interest seems to be being loyal to their own team, loyal to their quarterback. Um, e- even if they're not happy with everything about it, they kind of you know, push that aside and maintain this blind loyalty, which I think gets in the way, gets in the way of progress and collaboration. It's probably one of the biggest obstacles uh, to moving forward as a nation. Well, I always blame that on niche marketing, Nate. <laughs> well, that grew and I, I think it kind of yep. grew out of that. <laughs> yeah, and we saw how cable channels, you know, have become very narrow, yeah. um, and and everybody like follows their lead and they they check in with their own group, and nobody's thinking beyond that. And yeah, as I long it, as Americans settle into factions, uh, I don't know if there's much hope for getting beyond all this. But I want to remind people that you, you're the voter, you're the leader of this nation. These leaders in Washington, they work for you. If you're not happy with their approach, you gotta uh, bring them in line or vote them out of office. Well, Nate, it's uh, a real honor and a privilege uh, talking with you, and um, I, I just want to compliment you on the book. It's uh, it's a tremendous uh, uh, book, and it, it takes on um, some real importance in this uh, in this day and age. And how long has the book been out, Nate? It's been out a few months. It's available on Amazon. It's available online, Amazon and uh, Barnes and Noble. And um, yeah, I'm just getting started. I, I won um, a few uh, National Book Awards, and I'm um, looking forward to engaging more readers. And I was I was just going to mention that uh, it uh, received the Literary Titan Gold Medal Award. And congratulations on on those awards, Nate. Thanks, Tom. I really appreciate it. I think. I thank you for the opportunity to share my ideas with your audience. And, and I appreciate you sharing uh, your thoughts, not only with me and, and the listeners today, but in your book as well. Nate, uh, thanks so much, and keep up the good work. Okay, thank you, Tom. Take care. Take care. That was Dr. Nate Link. He is the chief medical officer at uh, Bellevue uh, Hospital, America's oldest public hospital in New York City, standing uh, at the epicenter of the COVID-19 outbreak. He's practiced at Bellevue for 37 years since arriving as an intern at the onset of the AIDS epidemic. And his uh, new book is called The Ailing Nation, Lessons from the Bedside for America's Leaders. And uh, with that, we're going to 
go to break and have more of the Tom Sumner program straight ahead. Um, still uh, coming up, we're going to talk uh, a little later uh, in the third half of our three-hour tour with the author of No Spring Chicken, Stories and Advice from a Wild Handicapper on Aging and Disability from Francine Falk Allen. Um, but uh, if you're listening to us on 92.1 FM, we're going to let them squeeze a few words in edgewise or do whatever they do when we go to break. If you're streaming us at TomSumnerProgram.com, we have some messages as well. So don't touch that dial. Don't click that mouse. More of the Tom Sumner Program is still to come. Hello there, citizens. Darkwing Duck here. And every time I'm in Flint fighting crime, I always stop by the Tom Sumner Program. Don't forget, stay dangerous. Darkwing Duck out. While we've been staying safe at home, scientists have been on a journey. The destination, a COVID-19 vaccine. This journey began decades ago with research into other coronaviruses. Scientists built from there with months of research and development, cooperation with other experts worldwide, and clinical trials on tens of thousands of volunteers of diverse race, age, and health status. They arrived at a safe, effective vaccine and hundreds of thousands in Michigan have already been vaccinated. But the next step is ours. We need to get the vaccine when we can, keep wearing masks correctly, and taking precautions until we reach our destination, freedom from COVID-19, and getting back to the lives we love. Discover the facts for yourself at michigan.gov slash COVID vaccine. A message from the Michigan Department of Health and Human Services. The Tom Sumner Program has hosted live candidate forums for local, state, and national offices at bars, restaurants, coffee shops, and colleges. Armchair Politics has gone to Lansing, Frankenmuth, Birch Run, and Hell. Hell, Michigan, that is. We've done shows all the way to the Mighty Mac and back to the bricks. We've done remotes from a baseball stadium in Lansing, a grocery store opening in Flint, and from a moving train. We'd like you to tell us where to go next. You can write to us at TomSumnerProgram.com, call us at 810-339-8255, or contact us on Facebook. This is your chance to tell the Tom Sumner Program where to go. Say, objection. I object. I object to that, Your Honor. Oh, hi, Mom. What's up? Dana, what are you doing? Oh, you know, just um, Attorney General stuff. Listen, I have a legal question. What is it, Mom? I just got a call from the water company. Apparently, your father has not been paying the bill. I guess they're going to turn the water off because we owe more than $1,000 now. Can you believe it? Actually, I can't. So listen, we just have to send them $200 in Edible Arrangements gift cards and that will keep the water on. Now, here's the legal question. What is the website for Edible Arrangements? Mom, it's an imposter scam. Imposter scam. Is that .com or .edu? No, the call was a scam. 
Scammers will pretend to be a government agency or a utility company or someone else you might do business with. A big red flag is if they tell you that you can pay them using gift cards. So when in doubt, ask for the information to be sent to you in writing. And never give a caller or someone you don't know your personal information or your money. If you do suspect an imposter scam, report it to my office at mi.gov slash agcomplaints. Okay, all right. And Dina, where do I file a complaint that my daughter hasn't visited in over a month? Does your office have a website for that? Okay, Mom, I'm hanging up now. I'm Michigan Attorney General Dana Nessel. Visit mi.gov slash agcomplaints for your connection to consumer protection. This is U.S. Senator Gary Peters, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. Ladies and gentlemen, Philip Rapp's creation, The Bickerson. After seven years of cycloid insomnia, or slugger's disease, John Bickerson had finally consented to allow Dr. Hershey to relieve his condition. In room 113 at the General Hospital, Mrs. Bickerson watches anxiously as a surgical nurse ministers to poor John, who is suffering an attack the night before the operation. Listen. Oh, it's like being married to a steam shovel nurse. Cough's normal. Enjoy yourself, dear. Dr. Hershey's waiting for you in the corridor, Mrs. Bickerson. Oh, hello, doctor. Is he resting? I gave him a sedative. That'll quiet him down. Well, he isn't very quiet. Oh, well, actually, I could have done the operation in my office. It's so trivial. I won't be in surgery over 15 minutes, and there's absolutely no danger whatsoever. Will it hurt him? Not the slightest. All we do is take a stitch in his palate and shorten his uvula. I hate to bring this up now, Dr. Hershey, but how much will it cost? The fee will be $50 with the anesthetic. How much is it without the anesthetic? (laughs) I would say about $40. Would there be... Any discomfort if he didn't have an anesthetic? Not for me, there wouldn't. I wouldn't advise the operation without it. And you're sure he'll be cured when you're through? Oh, practically certain. Well, it's almost midnight now. I'll do his case first thing about seven. He just needs a good night's rest. Well, I'll just stay a little longer. Good night. Call the floor nurse if you need anything. Oh, I will. I hope that pill's quieted him down. I'm sure that isn't doing him any good. John! John, wake up! What's the matter, Blanche? Uh, What's the matter, huh? I put the cat out, I locked the windows, I left a note for the milkman, and I I hung up... John! We're in the hospital. What for? Is somebody sick? No! You're going to have an operation. Dr. Hershey's going to shorten your uvula in the morning. Well, then, what did you wake me up now for? Well, you were snoring, and I was afraid you'd wear it off before you got a chance to operate. You've been snoring steadily for three hours. Don't you suppose I want to sleep, too? You're not sleeping here, are you? Yes, I am. It costs another $5 to put another cart in the room. I... And I intend to use it. I can't get one night's sleep. Where's my nightgown? Not even in the hospital. I don't understand why you have to have an operation to cure your snoring. I didn't want it. 
You've been working on me for seven years to do this. I'm beginning to think it was a waste of money. I could have used that $40. I'm still walking around in a short dress. What are you going on about? Tomorrow I'll be walking around with a short uvula. Don't be so crabby. I'm not crabby. I'm just sleepy. Why don't you stop fiddling with that mirror and put out the lights? I have to get undressed, don't I? Well, take your dress off. Why are you plucking your eyebrows at this time of night? I'm not plucking my eyebrows. I'm taking off my false eyelashes. False eyelashes? I didn't even know you had bald eyelids. My eyelids are not bald. It's just that my lashes are short, and they don't bring out my eyes. Lots of women use false eyelashes. Well, throw them away. You don't need anything to bring out your eyes. Really? Really. I'm satisfied with the way they bulge now. What kind of a remark is that? Oh, hurry up, Blanche. I'm groggy. Blanche, what on earth are you taking out of your hair? It's a rat. A what? A roll of false hair. I have to wear it for the new hairstyles. My own hair is too thin with a pompadour. Oh, darn it, I can't get out of this dress. Blanche, what are those things? Haven't you ever seen shoulder pads before? Oh, I've never heard of such a thing. Your eyelashes are on the dresser, your hair is in the drawer, and your shoulders are on the chairs. What about it? That's you all over, Blanche. No one can think of more ways to spend money. Are you ready for bed now? Yes, dear. I'm ready for bed. Shall I crank yours up a little? No, put out the lights. Oh, I wanted to glance at the paper first. You go ahead and go to sleep. I can't sleep with the lights on. I left my sleep shade at home. Well, I won't be a minute. No one would believe this. In six hours, they're going to carve me to pieces. I'm supposed to rest, and here I'm... Shh! I can't concentrate with you mumbling. (laughs) There's certainly a lot of activity in Washington. What's all this tax reduction talk? Talk. Listen to what's... Blanche, I read the paper, every word of it. Read it to yourself. Don't be so disagreeable. Dr. Hershey told me to keep you occupied so you wouldn't think about the operation. All I'm thinking about is sleep. Oh, that's a good boy. You mustn't get nervous. No. I see the stock market is going up. That's fine. We have some stock, haven't we? Didn't you get some stock last year? Ten shares. Kentucky Salt Petermann's preferred stock. My brother got you in on the ground floor, didn't he? Where is that now? In the ground. I can't even find it listed on the stock page. Look in the help wanted column. Are you getting relaxed, dear? No, now I'm starting to get nervous. I'm worried about you, John. If anything happened to you on the operating table, it would all be my fault. So, you know what I think? We'll, uh, sneak out, huh? No. I think you should make out a will. Make out a will? I thought you were worried about me. Well, you don't want to leave me at the mercies of all those grasping relatives of yours, do you? The minute you drop dead, they Don't talk like that. Can't you say pass on or something like that? Well, you always say drop dead. That's only when I'm talking to your brother. You could be a little more delicate when you're discussing wills. Why? Because you make it sound like I'm going to go any minute. Well, they don't give you two weeks' notice, you know. Every man should make out a will. Okay, I'll make it out tomorrow. You say it, but you won't do it. Get up now. Do it now. What? Go on, get up, and make out a will. 
Well, you're out of your mind. In the first place, a will isn't legal unless you have two witnesses. And in second place, I haven't got anything to leave in the first place. Nobody is going to take anything, and I don't need a will. You are the most stubborn man that ever lived, John. Why? Why am I stubborn? It's the hardest thing in the world to make you admit I'm right when you know I'm wrong. There's a woman's logic for you. Suppose I do make out a will, and nobody can touch anything besides you. Okay, so now... You've got it all, my worldly goods. First thing you know, you'll get over your grief, marry a guy without a dollar to his name like that broken-down snore specialist, Dr. Hershey. Oh, I'm not going to marry anybody. He'll give up his practice, take you for every penny, my hard-earned money. He'll drive around my brand-new car, drink my bourbon, (laughs) loaf around like the French, never do a day's work. Why don't you make the bum get a job, Blanche? And then screaming like that up and go to sleep go to sleep she tells me i'm a nervous wreck she practically walks me into a funeral mary's a doctor behind my back now she tells me to go to sleep i'll never sleep another wink as long as i john the telephone the telephone answer it who who the dickens is calling who moved the phone, Blanche? What'd you get up for? It's right on the night table beside your bed. I thought I was, uh... Hello? Mrs. Manassas, this is your maternity nurse. You can get ready now. I'm bringing your baby in. What? Blanche, how long have I been here? Isn't he 413? I don't know what this is, but I'm not feeding any babies. A way to run a hospital. It's just a mistake, John. No, I shouldn't have fallen for this operation deal. I could be so comfortable at home in my own bed. One of us should have stayed there. What for? How do you know a prowler won't break in? I left a whole bottle of bourbon on the dresser. Nobody will break in. The turkey would gobble and scare him away. The turkey would gobble? I can just see... Turkey? What turkey? Well, I was going to surprise you. I won a turkey in a raffle, John. You've got a live turkey running around the house? He isn't running around. I've got him tied to your bed. On my bed? What'd you do that for? I'll have the whole thing full of feathers. What'll we do with a live turkey? Well, it's Thanksgiving tomorrow, John, and I thought you'd murder him for dinner. I'm not going to murder any turkeys. But if he lays a beak on my bourbon, I'll chop his head off. Blanche, you're the most impossible woman that ever lived. Oh, I'm sorry, John. I guess everything I do is wrong. I'll go home and put the turkey out. Now, wait a minute, wait a minute. Never mind. I didn't mean to holler. Let's go to sleep so I can feel good for the operation. I don't think I want you to have it. What's the least I can do for you? Kept you awake all these years with my snoring, and when Dr. Hershey gets through with me, I'll be as quiet as a mouse. But if you stop snoring... I'll never wake you up, will I? No. And if I don't wake you up, we won't fight, will we? That's right. Well, that settles it. I'm not going to let him operate, John. Why not? It's the only chance I get to talk to you. Come on, we're going home. I give up.
touch that dial, you're listening to Tom Sumner.